Welcome to Education Talks, I'm David Burke. Craig Randall is a counsellor, coach, teacher, principal, author, trainer and consultant. He's also the author of Trust-Based Observations. He offers training in implementing trust-based observations in schools with the aim to improve the teacher evaluation process. On this episode of Education Talks, Craig shares with us his insights and experiences on how trust-based observations is benefiting teachers and school administrators. Well, Craig, welcome to Education Talks. It's uh, wonderful to have you here. Thanks, David. Appreciate the opportunity. um, Fantastic. Uh, Whereabouts in the world are you joining us from? I am in Seattle. Well, actually, Tacoma, Washington in the United States, uh, 30 miles south of Seattle on the West Coast in the Pacific Ocean. It was sunny today, which is a rarity for us in the winter. Uh, So we'll take it. That sounds very nice. Um, Now, uh, thanks um, thanks again for being here. Um, I wonder if you can start by telling us a little bit about your uh, background, uh, your career in education, and with particular uh, focus on your experience as a school leader. Sure. I think I have a fairly eclectic uh, educational background, really. I started out my career as a school counselor uh, at the elementary level and did that for seven years. Did a one-year detour where I worked as a school counselor in a severe behavior classroom in a middle school with nine boys, all but one who'd been adjudicated and liked to curse and draw reactions and had to do physical restraint all 180 days. And in the United States, we coach. Uh, Sports are such a big part of the school. And I coached basketball and I had a chance to take a fairly significant career change. And so I ended up coaching small college basketball in the United States for seven years, uh, three years of what we call a division three school and four years at a junior college. And then decided to actually uh, go overseas. And so my family and I ended up uh, at the American School of Warsaw, and I taught PE and health there. And while I was there, one of the starting the leadership journey, I suppose, one of the principals said, hey, Craig, you ought to go and uh, like administration, become a principal. My first thought was the dark side, never. But then I was realized, well, I ought to be flattered by that. And so I, I started my program. And really, that's where I met my mentor. Uh, Warren Aller at Western Washington University. And I think my journey, like I knew I didn't like observations even way back when, but I think my journey really started with him and his supervision class where he just said, you have to be in classes every day, observing teachers, supporting them, helping them grow, asking them about what they were doing to help students learn. And and we would just practice over and over and over. And I think that really got me going. And then I got my first assistant principal job at Korea International School. And I got lucky there again because my boss, who'd had a whole career in the U.S. as a principal, was at the point in his career where somebody who was super passionate uh, was that he could mentor was was what really drove him. And and so I was. And I told him about this crazy idea I had for doing observations. And he said, "Okay, let's do it," which is really cool that he wanted to do it with me. And so. We started doing observations there. We'll talk more about that, I'm sure, as we go along. And then I got my first principal job in Riyadh and and then uh, had uh, a couple other principal jobs, ending up uh, my last one in Brazil. And that's actually where the trust base really, I think, started to go towards maybe this is a thing and naming it and 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 the director asking me to train the other people in what we were doing. And then the elementary principal saying, Craig, you got to protect your work. And my naively not knowing what he was talking about and his saying, this is what you're doing. It's your work. And which led to 
doing a, a presentation at a conference, which went really well, which led to writing an article, which got accepted right away, which led to not down too far down the road. We ended up going home and, and uh, I went to a coffee shop five days a week and wrote a book and led to trust-based observations. Fantastic. Now, can you just sort of uh, tell us a little bit about how it all started? How did it, that develop, trust-based observations uh, concept? For sure with Warren in his class, because he, we would, in his course, we would bring, we would have to bring a 10 minute mini lesson. And so it could be on anything. It'd be on making a paper airplane. It didn't matter. It was just something that we could observe. And so we did it and we would just script what we saw. And then we would have a reflective conversation immediately afterwards. And it was driven by two questions that still drive what we do in the reflective conversation today. And they were, what were you doing to help students learn? And if you had the opportunity to do it over, what, if anything, might you do differently? And really just that change by instead of telling, we listened right away. It just made such a huge difference in the way, like, I mean, we just practiced. I should back up a little bit. So I say I felt super, super confident in my ability to observe right away. And so then once I was in Korea and we started doing it, just teachers responded to it just so so overwhelmingly positively to it right away and i think it was really because we we listened we didn't tell and and so by starting it by asking them about their practice it just it it flipped the game and and as a result teachers started just being really willing to embrace huge huge change in their practice so that's really where it started fantastic um can you uh, perhaps to explain some of the key elements of trust-based and how does it differ from uh, you know, traditional teacher evaluation methods? Absolutely. The first thing that I'm going to say about the way it differs is we do not evaluatively rate pedagogy. Uh, there's a man named Matt O'Leary out of the UK, and to me, he's the predominant researcher on observation evaluation in the world. His research shows that as soon as we start to evaluatively rate or grade teachers, and he means like their pedagogy, like what they're doing in the classroom, the following things happen. There's a loss of relational trust between observer and teacher, which then leads to teachers tending to play it safe in practice, which then means there's no risk-taking or innovation in your practice. And if we're not trying new things, if we don't feel safe enough to try new things, we're not going to get better. And so really that's 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 one of the biggest cores is that we don't rate because that's what it does. Um, I would say frequency, where normally it's maybe once or twice a year, maybe more in some places. The goal here is once every three to four weeks. I would say another difference is where there's a, they're announced and you have a pre-observation conference we take that out of it because we don't think that's authentic teaching uh, because just human nature, if we know something's going to happen, we're going to put in more energy to it. And so therefore, how can I support you in something that's not authentic? And how can we have a meaningful discussion about something that's, that's not authentic. And so there are 20 minutes, they're unannounced. We see you roughly every three to four weeks. Um, I think the observation template is different. Like in, in say, Danielson or Marzano, the number of, I think they've reduced the numbers, but even like the 20-something to 30-something down from 60 or 70 mm -hmm. that they were, we're down to just nine areas of pedagogy. Research shows uh, that as soon as we have more than 10 areas of pedagogy, observers start to lose the forest through the trees, don't really see the craft and art of teaching. It just becomes a tick box exercise. And so we have it down to a manageable number uh, of areas of, of pedagogy. I would say just on the observation form too, we've, and it's a difference 
for sure is we've made the form double as a professional development resource tool. So for each one of the nine areas of pedagogy, we have what we list as toolbox possibilities, which there's just a whole bunch of thorough but abridged list of strategies that could fall within each area of pedagogy. And each one of those, if you click on the toolbox possibilities, the word toolbox possibilities, it's hyperlinked that brings you to another page that's a professional development resource page. It starts with a deep dive, books that you can go into, general articles about that strategy, and then maybe most importantly, actionable articles or videos that I can click on, read, watch, and begin to put into my practice tomorrow. So I think that's uh, another one I would say definitively the timeliness of the reflective conversations, they're always the next day. Uh, I mean, sometimes they can be the same day, but, um, but mm. they're timely. They're soon enough afterwards that we can remember what's happening. So I think those are some of the main uh, strategies and differences between trust-based observations. And, and I'll let me say this. No, I'm going to add out. I think the main difference and it ties into the core strategies too, is really it's about trust. And it's about all the actions we do to build trust in the reflective conversation. Do you want me to talk about those? Absolutely, please do. Okay, so the first thing that we do is we have the reflective conversation in the teacher's room. And we always say whether you're seven, 17 or 37, getting called to the principal's office feels like getting called to the principal's office. Mm -hmm. David, I don't know if you ever got an email from a teacher, from a principal saying, Hey, could you come on down to my office? And it could be to tell you that some parent said something really great to you. But as soon as you got that email, did you have just that moment of like, <gasps> Oh no, what did there I is, do? There is like a bit of a quick audit that you do <laughs> that you go through and go, ah, okay. Okay. Everything's okay. I don't think there should be anything wrong. That's your first thought. Exactly. And so when we have it in a room, that just creates more safety, uh, a sense of safety, which is really, really important. And then, uh, and I'll also tell you another thing about that when it's in their room, sometimes that can trigger more memory and make the reflective conversation more meaningful because mm -hmm. that space, it, it, it can trigger something where when I'm, when they're in my office, that wouldn't necessarily happen. Um, the second thing we do is, is we do it in the teacher's room. I mean, sorry, not in the teacher's room. We ask permission, like, hey, is now a good time? And it seems like a silly little thing, but it's just a little respect piece. And 99.9% and .9 of the time they say yes, but, but it makes a difference in terms of what they do. And so just sidestepping just momentarily, I want to talk about the trust. And, and so Brene Brown, who's a super popular sociologist in the U.S. right now, she talks about trust building and vulnerability. And she says that vulnerability can actually be a good thing but as leaders, if we want to build trust so teachers are willing to take risks, then we have to build trust and we have to lower that sense of vulnerability so they're willing to do it and so they're willing to take risks. And so she talks about trust as, as a jar and it's like putting a marble at a time into the jar and trying to fill that jar so that the more trust they have, the more they're willing to take a risk. And so we say that like having it in their room is, is, is a marble. Asking permission is a marble. The next one is we sit beside them, not across from them, because research shows uh, on hierarchical power differences within jobs that if we sit across from someone, that magnifies that difference, where if we sit beside them, that minimizes that difference. And so we sit beside them. And I'll just tell you, as a father of twins who turn 21 tomorrow, um, that during some of those teenage years, there were times when it was hard to get them to talk to us but somehow if we'd go on a hike where we're one in front of the other or we're in the car and we're side by side, they would just all of a sudden start talking. And so we think the same thing really applies 
not quite as dramatically as with teenagers, but with adults as well. And so we sit beside them. And so that's a marble in the jar. The next thing that we do is we're totally transparent, just like you and I are looking at screens. The form that we use to fill out, it's right there in front of them and me so we can see it together. And we think that's by being transparent, that's a marble in the jar as well. Then we think the next step, which really goes back to my training with Warren, is a huge, huge piece where we don't start by telling, we start by asking. And so we start with those two questions and those questions by asking those questions, unpacking those questions. And then what we do afterwards, it, it, we look at that as like a handful of marbles in the trust jar. And so we just say, what were you doing pedagogically speaking to help students learn? But we unpack it even before that, because it's not uncommon when you have an observation, especially when it's unannounced, for a teacher to think, oh, they just missed the best part or the best part was going to happen right after they left. And so we tell them that. We just say, look, we want to hear about those 20 minutes. But if you feel like the best part we missed, feel free to share that too. And we think that's a marble in the jar, just making it safer for them. Then we capture their answers. We type what they say. We try and reframe what they say into the pedagogical language of the form. We share that information back with them when we think that's really demonstrating active listening for them. And that's marbles in the jar as well. We ask if there's anything else that they'd like to share. We ask the second question, if you had the opportunity to reteach the lesson, what, if anything, might you have done differently? We unpack that as well as more trust building marbles. So we say, look, teaching's really hard. And I've seen a bunch of lessons where over the 20 minutes, I wouldn't recommend you do anything differently. So if that's the case, please tell us that. Don't feel obligated because I'm your boss to have to manufacture something. And we think by saying that, that's a trust marble in the jar as well. And then we also tell them, but we also know most of the time when we teach, we tend to think, oh, I wish I would have done that. So we ask that question. We type their answers again. We think the next thing is a reverse marble in the jar. We don't ask after we give back their answers, is there anything else? Because we're afraid if we do that, they might go, oh, did I, did I do something wrong? And so anyway, we do that. Then the next thing we do, we don't do this all the time, but this next step we do the first time for sure we do an observation. And if we feel like someone needs to hear it more, we'll do it more than that. We tell them what the goal of trust-based observations is, and we think being explicit like this is hugely important. We tell them that the goal of trust-based observations is for me and everyone in the building that does observations to build enough trust with you and every other teacher in the building so that any one of us can come into your classroom, observe you, see you trying something new, and even though it's highly, highly unlikely, if have it be a complete and total disaster, a train wreck, Yet when we leave, the goal is that we built enough trust that you don't even worry because you know what's going to happen the next day. You know the next day when we come into your classroom, the first thing we're going to say is, I love it that you took a risk yesterday. Because when we tell them when we created those conditions, here's what's going to happen. You will persist in taking risks. So will every other teacher in this mm -hmm. building. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, we know we will necessarily grow. So we do that. And then we just go into the nine areas of uh, on the form and we share them. And the form is really visual. It has all these tables and pyramids. When people first see it, they're like, it's super daunting to them. and think I'll never be able to do this. But after we practice a, a few times, it, it becomes quite easy for them. And so we share what we captured. And, and as we do, there's no ratings. We're just sharing it as strengths. And really, that's what we do the first three times through is we don't offer any suggestions. We didn't even begin to think about offering a suggestion. There's exceptions for new teachers. And if I saw something super, super egregious, but we just want to build trust and show them this is the new way we're doing things. But even then, when we do begin to offer a suggestion, that's completely different because we don't say, hey, I'd like you to get better at formative assessment, David. 
we, so there's two main ways that we offer support. So one way is that we, because we're in classes so much now, we know firsthand who all of our best instructors are at different areas of pedagogy. So we tap into that. And so we'd say, David, you are like amazing at descriptive progress feedback. Everybody knows it. I've got a teacher that could really benefit from your expertise. Would you be willing to help them? No one ever says no to that, by the way. And so we might pair them up that way. Another way would be we use those toolbox possibilities. We dig into an article ourselves. Sorry about that beep going on there. Um, dig into an article or two ourselves. And we go over that with the teacher and talk about and begin to plan how we can put that into their practice tomorrow. But then beyond that, now, when's my next reflective observation with them? Just three or four weeks down the road. So we do everything the same. But we focus intently also on that one area and become maybe an instructional coach. And we don't pile on and work on anything else until we help support that teacher to get up to that level with, with that one area of pedagogy. And so really, that's the key differences. And it, the, the power of it is, is it, teachers just love it. And it, it really, really helps them feel comfortable taking risks and grow. I can certainly imagine people being very happy working in a school under that approach. Um, I wonder, though, what is it initially that makes educators or school leaders buy your book? Uh, I think right now, many, many school leaders don't like doing observations. They don't like the way it works. They don't like having to give ratings. At both sides dread the ratings. Teachers dread the ratings. Like teachers right now, when they have an observation and a reflective conversation, anything I say positively in the traditional way of doing observations, they don't even hear because all they're thinking is, what's my rating going to be? What's my rating going to be? What's my rating going to be? Teachers don't like it. Teachers don't like to say your approaches or your what. I mean, not teachers. Leaders don't like it either. And so no one likes it the way it is. And so I think... Sometimes like in a podcast like this, when they hear this or they see the word trust, I think it resonates with people. And then they, I think a lot of people think I've always wanted to do something different. And then they'll hear something about this or they'll see a, a social media post and it resonates with them. It's like, like a sigh of relief almost. Like I, I've always wanted something different and now this could be what it is for them. I, we, we, met, we talked before and I mentioned those words that a lot of people sometimes use when they agree with something that it just sounds like common sense. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it is, isn't it, really? It's a, it's, you've structured something which is, um, I guess, a constructive way of helping people rather than straight out sort of passing or failing people. It's, it's not rocket science at all. It is just common sense. And even maybe more important to that right now is in the last four years, there have been two major studies that have come out that have said the way we've been doing teacher observations is not working. The Gates Foundation had their measures of effective teaching, which was seven years, $575 million designed to improve the quality of teaching, student learning outcomes, and graduation rates through the development of a more robust teacher evaluation process. In six of the seven districts where they did this, it was really doing Danielson and trying to do it to fidelity to what it called for. And the results were, and I quote, no sustained improvement. So we have that. And then a year ago, last November, an Annenberg study came out that was really a nine-year meta-study of all teacher evaluation reform efforts between 2009 and 2017. And the results of that were, again, quotations, no improvement. 
So what we're doing isn't working. I, I didn't like go, ah, this is the problem. I'm going to solve it. It just happens to work that way. But I think it is. It's just common sense. It's like trust is huge. When people feel safe, they're willing to take risks and try new things. When we're not, they're going to pull back and they're going to play it safe. And plus, it's just nicer. Everyone everyone likes that better. It's, it's, it's happier for both parties and the, the teachers and the observers. Um, can it be applied in an online learning setting? So I'm guessing there's been some opportunities to explore that over the last few years. Well, the book came out in September 2020. So the very first training I did was at the Canadian International School of Beijing. And we did it online, but they were actually in the classroom. So I'm not sure that one counts. But just this last December, I worked with an online charter school in the Los Angeles area. And so we did the training remotely because even the leaders were in remote places and they were online lessons that the teachers were doing with, you know, anywhere from one to, you know, a dozen students online. And it works just the same. The form works. We're able to see everything just like you and I are looking at each other now. Uh, fill out the form. We're able to have a reflective conversation the next day where the, we're sharing the screen and the teachers can see it. It works exactly the same. I was a little nervous not having done it before, but it was it was a relief and a joy to know that it worked for, uh, for that setting as well. Yeah. Because teaching's teaching, pedagogy's pedagogy. You don't have to be a content expert, but just the, the core basics of teaching don't really change. Absolutely. Um... Let's focus on the, the, the biggest benefits. So what are the biggest benefits of trust-based observations for both school leaders and teachers? Well, I think I think just the culture is a big is a big one. I think it changes your culture and, and almost immediately. I was actually at a an international school in May, the Australian International School Phnom Penh. And I was leaving on, on Friday afternoon with this, the, the trainings are normally week long. And I was leaving on Friday afternoon and the school leader and I happened to come across at three different times, three different teachers that we had not observed that week because it's a big school. And they all said basically the same thing. And they definitely said it in the same sort of wistful tone. And they all said something along the lines of, oh, I thought you were going to observe me. And the thought is like, where in the world do teachers say, no fair, I didn't get my turn being observed. <laughs> and that is really only the result of the teachers who have had reflective conversations talking amongst other teachers and the word spreading that quickly. So it changes your culture just immediately. But I think it's a happier place to work. I think we talk about teacher retention being such a huge issue right now. It's an enormous issue in the United States. If we're happier and feel like it's safe and we can experiment and try things and even have them go poorly and know we're going to be supported, I'm happier. I'm going to stay. It's going to, it's going to impact retention in a positive way. And though we don't have long-term studies on it because trust base is really only really only fall of last year, 21, was able to really start going out. But we're getting reports already of it making a big difference in the quality of teaching and learning that's already happening in our schools. And so I think those are those are the main key areas that, that impacts teaching and learning and Craig, schools. What, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Craig, what advice would you give to school administrators who are listening to this and who are perhaps thinking about implementing trust-based observations in their school? Email me. <laughs> um, seriously, I mean, email me, Craig, at trustbase.com, and we'll have a chat. We can talk about uh, 
training. I mean, listen, have people to given it a go on their own? Yeah, but for sure, it, it, it works better with training. I'm happy to put them in touch with every single school leader we've trained. But I mean, one, I guess get the book maybe, two, so you know, have a little more background on it. But, but I guess beyond that, I think I want to say more than that, take the risk. Like, what do we have to lose? We've been doing something now really in the U.S. since No Child Left Behind in 2002 with this insane testing accountability and teaching evaluation accountability have, have come into vogue. And, and now we have two main studies that saying it's not improving teaching and learning. So what are we supposed to do? Keep pushing against that wall? Maybe if I push hard enough and hard enough, maybe I'll be the one that can figure it out. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Let's say, let's do it. You'll be happy. Happier, your teachers will be happier. It'll create a better environment. Your teachers will stay longer. And I really, really, really believe it's going to improve teaching and learning as well. I wonder, is there any, have you noticed any differences between uh, different schools, different um, countries, uh, you know, international schools versus uh, local schools in the US? Uh, is there any sort of standout difference or is this something which just has the same universals across the board? The trust-based, you mean? Yeah. The observation? Yeah. It works the same. It, it works like we've observed three-year-olds. And I was a little nervous. I'm a secondary guy. And so I was a little worried about three-year-olds. But, oh, my gosh, it works. Cra- cra- like, if you think about three-year-olds, what are they doing? They're practicing by doing all the time. There's formative assessment going on and descriptive progress feedback differentiation like crazy. I mean, cooperative learning, all these things. We're asking tons of questions. It's all – it works – Three-year-olds, twelve-year-olds, IB. It works. British curriculum schools. We've we've done a we did a a school in November in the UK that was a severe, profound disability. I've done autism spectrum schools. It works on every single level. I know it would work on university too. It really doesn't make any difference at all. It's just it's universal. Brilliant. Now, Craig, is there anything that you're currently working on that uh, you're excited about? <laughs> Uh, I'm starting to, I don't know if it's going to like, I don't know if you've heard of Angela Duckworth. She wrote the book called Grit. And uh, so anyway, she has a podcast and I listen to her on her podcast and she says, she talks about like her book and, and not knowing ahead of time how much work is involved in a book. And now that she's written a book, she's saying, I'm never, ever, ever going to write another book again. Because when you don't know, you're just kind of blissfully just persevering along. But when you know how much work is involved, the thought is like, oh God. No, I don't want to do that again because you know now. But I've been preparing for uh, a keynote. So this is my first keynote coming up where I was invited to do a keynote. So that's something exciting that I'm ex- And so as part of that, I've been digging into the history. And I'll tell you, when I wrote the book originally, I wrote about 80 pages on the history of teaching observations. And the publisher said, we love we love this idea, but we don't want the, the history part. And uh and you're so excited to have some a publisher of, of reputation take your book. I was like, yeah, no problem. But as I've been doing the preparation and, and digging into the history, because I want to talk about that a little bit, it's got me in the mindset of like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll start writing that one on the history of observation. What went wrong or something like that? So mm-hmm. I don't know. So the keynote and that's floating around in my head. A lot happening. So that's really great. Uh, Craig, uh, look, it's been wonderful to have you on the program. Uh, If people want to get in touch, uh, you mentioned your website. I'll have it on the bottom of the screen, uh, trustbase.com, and link in the description. Also, your book, 
um, available on Amazon. I'll have yep. the link in there as well. Um, fantastic. Look, really enjoyed this conversation. Really great to uh, connect with you and uh, hope that uh, at some point down the track we can catch up again. We'll have a beer for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for being on Education Talks. Thanks so much, David. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Education Talks is an Ed Events production for the Ed Events community. You can keep up to date with the development of the community by registering on the website at ed.events.